The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the brutal fighting in the centre of the country, analyse the emergence from the shadows of Yevgeny Prigozhin and his mercenary army, the Wagner Group, and Dom Nichols takes us through the principles of a good defence as the Russian army digs in in the south. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 8th of November, day 258. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, and our foreign correspondent, James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Good afternoon, everybody. It seems like it's been a, another very, very violent 24 hours, particularly along the, the central axis around the Donbass, uh, and in particular by Ukrainian indirect fire against Russian mobilised troops. So those those recently recently arrived soldiers we think are untrained, ill-equipped, poorly led, not not no great protection, no overhead cover or very little overhead cover if there is any at all, very few trenches. Um, it seems as if they've just been pushed in there without any great plan, without any great uh, protection. So President Zelensky said in his nightly address last night that hundreds have been killed. The general staff of Ukraine this morning put a figure on that of 710 very specific, but I mean, you know, quite quite high hundreds in the Bakhmut area, um, which is, you know, taking the brunt of this at the moment. Um, and the general staff are saying that that takes the total Russian KIA killed in action to over 77,000. Now, we often say, or I always say, just just be careful with these figures. Um, it's very difficult to to uh, verify these figures anyway. And there's, there's going to be a natural tendency for both sides to exaggerate the, these types of figures. But... As I said before, um, the last time, which was admittedly some months ago now, but the last time Western officials spoke on the record about about these kind of the figures and the and the, the number of um, deaths reported by Ukraine, they weren't they weren't a million miles away. They were about I think about two thirds or three quarters of what the, of what Ukraine seen, were reporting at the time. So if they're saying seventy seven thousand KIA, I mean if we take a, a slice off that and say fifty thousand dead, I mean this huge huge number. And of course for each each dead soldier then. The, the standard metric is about three or four other wounded soldiers who can no longer take an immediate part in hostilities. So these are huge numbers that are that are happening here, um, mostly around the centre. Uh, although there have been um, there have been uh, strikes uh, elsewhere, and uh, Ukraine said that, that uh, there were fifty or fifty other main locations across the country that were being uh, that were being hit: uh, Donbass, Zaporizhia, Hezon region, Mykolaiv. Uh, also in the Kharkiv region to the north, uh, to the northeast, hit by missiles and multiple launch rocket systems. So, still very, very um, bloody on the on the front line. Still a lot of missiles and uh, and loitering munitions being used against Ukraine. This continuing Russian attempt to to destroy power and water um, to to basically freeze Ukrainian civilians as the winter approaches. So, still very. Um, very violent and a lot of preparation by the look of it from Russia, which we can come on to a bit later if you like, preparation for some sort of defensive positions we've seen around um, Hezon and also in the in the centre uh, around the Donbass area. I'll take a little pause there. Thanks very much, Don. Well, you just mentioned Hezon. Francis, um, there's been some news coming out of Hezon over the past 48 hours. Um, can you talk us through it? Sure. Thanks, David. Good afternoon, everyone. Hezon has been a absolute pivotal focus for us now um, for, for, for several weeks. And as you say, there are two interesting pieces of stories that have come out of the city. The first is that we now understand that as things stand, the city's been left cold and dark. It's after all of the power and water were cut off in the surrounding area in the past 48 hours. Now, what's interesting is that both the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, have talked about this. 
Russian installed officials are blaming the Ukrainians, saying it's sabotage, whilst the Ukrainian officials are saying that the Russians have dismantled about 1.5 kilometres of power lines. Now, this all comes, of course, amid Ukrainian claims that Russian forces have been looting the infrastructure as they withdraw from the areas around Herzon. Another story that's coming out of there is that Russian troops are dressing in civilian clothes and are occupying homes in the city as they're preparing for street fighting. We've spoken in the past about whether this withdrawal is actually that at all and that the Russians are trying to uh, dig in uh, troops disguised as uh, civilians in order to actually put up a much sterner defence than than is uh, being promoted to the international community. That would, of course, point to this um, if this story is true. The Ukrainian military have said that Russian forces, quote, disguised in civilian clothes, occupy the premises of civilians and strengthen positions inside for conducting street battles. The Russian forces are involved in looting and theft from residents and from infrastructure sites and are taking away equipment, food and vehicles to the Russian Federation. So two interesting stories that I think offer uh, an interesting insight in what things are, are currently like in, in, in Herzon as things stand. Thank you very much. Francis, can I stay with you? Just ahead of the uh, American midterm elections, uh, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has sent a message to the US. And there's a couple of interesting uh, bits and pieces around this I think you'd quite like to talk through. Yes. So President Zelensky has urged the United States to remain united in a uh, speech that he gave to an accept uh, a US Medal of Liberty last night. Now, his wording is interesting, and I'll read it in full. I call on you to maintain unwavering unity as it is now until that very day when we all hear these important words that we have been dreaming of, until we hear that peace has been finally restored. Democracies must not stop on their way to victory. Now, this was in a recorded address, as I say, uh, whilst he received the Liberty Medal, which is an annual award administered by the National Constitutional Centre of the United States to recognise leadership in the pursuit of freedom. Now, what's the significance of this contextually? Well, of course, as we've spoken about in the past at length, there is concern that uh, the shift in the political axis in the United States may be happening in a way that does not favour the uh, Ukrainian cause, uh, that um, some speculate that a a shift to the Republicans will mean that there is less of a willingness to offer a blank check to Ukraine. Of course, Trump was more of an isolationist um, figure. Uh, Make America Great Again was was his sort of central thesis, and the Republican Party, of course, is still very much... um, working within certain parameters, at least, that are being set by Donald Trump at the moment. Whether that will continue to be the case, of course, remains to be seen. But nonetheless, uh, there is cause for concern, rightly or wrongly, as a consequence of that. Now, what's interesting, just staying on the United States, is that the Biden administration has been privately telling Ukraine to signal willingness to hold talks with Russia or to risk losing support from other nations. Now, it's important to emphasise that this request isn't aimed at pushing Ukraine to the negotiating table, but is rather being seen as a calculated attempt to ensure that Kyiv maintains weapons support. And the fear is, uh, according to the reports that we've been reading, that Europe, Africa, Latin America are concerned that, that if Ukraine is too obstinate on the idea of any kind of peace deal that this war will will just drag on. And so whilst the United States remains very firm on wanting to see an absolute Ukrainian victory, the this is meant to be a calculated attempt to show more of a willingness that keeps the rest of the uh, world uh, on side. That's the thinking. Now, I should say that this report is, is uh, published in the Washington Post. You've gone into a lot of detail about this. They indeed quote sources. I'll read from one unnamed US official. Ukraine fatigue is a real thing for some of our partners. And so, um, and he goes on and talks about how there needs to be a reflection of the concerns. If the war drags on, then Ukraine could see some wavering of support from some of its allies. Now, just staying on this for one more minute, if I may, Zelensky has responded, I think, to this directly because he's made it clear that he is not ruling out negotiations or direct talks with with Russia, 
but that it is ruling it out with Putin. So as I spoke about last week, this is, I think, one of the red lines for the Ukrainians is about who they are negotiating with, that they see that Putin is not the man who can be seen as doing that. But nonetheless, they are still trying to signal to the world, as part of this uh, Washington Post report, that they believe that there is much more uh, that, that they can be perhaps doing to at least keep the idea of, of, of there being some kind of negotiated peace alive for right or wrong, even if they um, themselves think that actually that is a, a, a not something that is, is possible nor desirable in their case. So just wrapping this all up, we registered, of course, on this podcast many months ago that the shifting political tides are really a pillar of Putin's strategy. He believes over time the cost of living crisis will mean that democracies will start to elect in the opposition to the current political status quo, which in some cases happened to be the parties with a more sceptical line in Ukraine. And indeed, as things stand, there is some evidence that is what is taking place. So this will be a central challenge for Kyiv in the coming weeks and months, is, is keeping that support on side when things get particularly challenging over the winter. But I'm sure it's something, as I say, that Ukraine is very, very sensitive to. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, and uh, James, can I turn to you? You've written a couple of interesting stories that I want you to talk to us about. The first is uh, this assassination attempt on this pro-Russia judge uh, in Donetsk. Can you tell us uh, what happened there? I think this is over the weekend. So over the weekend, this judge, um, some unknown gunman shot this judge up in a, in a town to the east of Donetsk, um, rebel part of Donbass. Uh, he was badly injured. He wasn't killed. It's not even clear, 100% clear, if it was Ukrainian partisans or uh, some sort of turf war, internal turf war in Donetsk. There's a lot of crime involved in in these areas. Um, but the interesting thing about this judge is he was the guy who handed down the death sentences to the two British fighters, soldiers, who, who were contracted to the Ukrainian military and their Moroccan colleague, um, earlier in the summer, so he he he's he's very much part of the regime. He's he's prepared to go quite a long way to impose regime's will on on captured soldiers, etc. In the end, um, the two uh, two British guys and, and and the Moroccan and some other POWs they were released in a deal uh, negotiated through um, the Middle East. But this guy is a serious um, cog in the rebel pro-Russia system. So the assassination attempt is what we, we, we assume it was, um, was quite a big hit, would have been quite a big hit to the Donetsk um, regime and hierarchy. It's part of a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's part of a, um, uh, several assassinations we've seen over the summer, mainly around Kherson and mainly um, as Ukraine has taken up the offensive and, and gone on the front foot, the partisans have, have, have possibly under orders increased their activity as well. We've seen several assassination attempts in Kherson. It's, it's more rare to have, to have one in the Donetsk region. Um, but yeah, that stood out as an interesting weekend story. Can I just ro- roll back onto what Francis and you were talking about earlier about the US please, midterm please. elections? Um, so there was an important story again in the weekend with Wagner Group, which we spent a lot of time discussing um, on this podcast, and we've done an awful lot of writing about it. It's been one of the most um, otherworldly stories to come out of this terrible war. The, the the rise of this mercenary Wagner Group, which Kremlin, um, as we all know, used to deny even existed, although there was very strong links between the Kremlin and the Wagner Group's work in um, Syria, Libya, uh, Libya, and elsewhere. Uh, as if, uh, quick recap: Wagner Group's come out of the shadows. Um, it's been um, officially recognised by Kremlin as as a mercenary group, even though Russian law bans mercenary groups. They've they've recruited openly on on billboards around them, Russia, etc. And they've been going around prisons, um, uh, recruiting from from criminals. So in, in return for a pardon, um, in return for fighting for six months in Ukraine, you get pardon and you can be a murderer um, or, or white collar crime criminal, etc. Uh, uh, on Friday last last week, we had this remarkable scene where um, the Wagner Group 
as I as I wrote, it sort of completed its corporate transition, its sort of coming out transition, and it opened a brand new office block on the edge of St. Petersburg, huge 23-storey, glass and steel, very modern-looking thing, you know, huge foyers, all this sort of thing, um, and also unveiled a, a new brand at the same time, this Varavar Anodyne um, corporate W instead of a, a laughing skull in a, in a sniper's crosshair. So it, it sort of completed the transition. The idea of the um, of the uh, <clears throat> of the new office block was to offer office space free of charge to startup companies which are promoting the defence of Russia. That could be military, that could be technology, that could be uh, intelligence, etc. This is a massive building. And what analysts really think is going to happen is that Wagner Group, um, which is mainly uh, a fighting group, um, is going to start bringing in these troll farms that the financer of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prirodin, has been overseeing into this building. Now, the reason that these troll farms um, and these internet uh, guys that um, Perogen has been financing important is because the assumption was that several years ago during US elections, they were trying to meddle. They were trying to influence voters into voting for Trump or voting for um, the candidate the Kremlin thought would, was, would, would have best suited their aims. So here we have a huge new, shiny new office on the outskirts of uh, St. Petersburg. Wagner Group coming out of the, of you know, really coming into the open, etc. And now yesterday you also have um, Prigozhin, who's known as um, um, Putin's chef because he, he he runs a catering company on the side, Concord, uh, releasing statements admitting for the first time that indeed he had meddled in U.S. elections. This is absolutely huge. Here we have a guy who funds a Kremlin-linked mercenary group admitting that he has meddled in US elections. He takes orders directly from the Kremlin. So this will come from with the blessing of Putin, etc. And not only did he say that he was going to meddle, he had meddled in US elections, he said they were going to do it again right now. So incredible story. Uh, Wagner Group continues to absolutely baffled commentators and journalists um the the the, the sort of the 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 sort of arrogance and 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 the and the sort of punts is is so incredible it, it blows your mind thanks very much james dom i know you had some thoughts about what uh, wagner's as, as james has lyrically put it coming out of the shadows might mean for russia yes i do uh, hi james great to hear from you again i mean um, so Prigozhin and wagner as James says, coming out of the shadows. This has long been reported. We've always, either well, in print, we've always couched it with allegedly, um, just to be absolutely belt and braces. But I think there's, there's no doubt about about this. We've we've talked about it for some time now. Um, so so just to finish off the bit about about Prigozhin talking about the U.S. meddling, he said in a statement published by his press office. Interesting. Wagner now I have their own press office. But he said, quote, let me say this in an elegant and subtle way and allow me to use a certain double meaning. We have been interfering, bracket, in the US elections, close brackets, and we will keep doing so. We will be doing this carefully, discreetly and in a surgeon-like manner to the best of our abilities. Our pinpointed surgeries will be removing both kidneys and liver, unquote. So so delightful quote there um, from the from the press office. Um <laughs> subtle and double meaning. Mm, not sure, Yevgeny. Pretty obvious to uh, to us what's been going on there. But so so he's talking about meddling. We've got the Wagner office, the new logo, all that kind of all that kind of jazz. I mean, what what he's doing here, I think, is he's expressing his political aspiration. There's long been talk that he and Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, do not get on, and that Prigozhin has been pushing for a greater role in political life. We think he's fairly close to Putin. He's known as Putin's chef because he had the he had the restaurants in St. Petersburg where he was first photographed, you know, physically serving Putin at a, at a meal, and he then won all sorts of lucrative catering contracts for the Kremlin. So, you know, he's been close to Putin for ages. Interesting, you may remember last week I had a background brief with a Western official asked asked the Western official specifically about this and the role of Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the Chechen leader, 
And we were told, the journalists there assembled were told, actually, no, these guys aren't in the inner circle. They are they are, they are close enough to, to feel that they can have some sort of voice here, but they're not absolutely pivotal to Putin's mind. I'm not so, not so sure about that. I think this is quite interesting. If you look at what Wagner's doing on the ground in Donbass, they're putting in what they themselves are calling the Wagner line. These are uh, concrete fortifications, um, basically small pyramid structures that would be uh, um, anti-tank or anti-vehicle um, obstacles. We can talk about what what obstacles are in a minute because there's a lot, a lot of that happening around Hezon. But the, so the Wagner line's going in around the Donbass. You've got Prigozhin taking a much more public stance. I mean, there is some suggestion that one of the um, one of the plates that Putin might be spinning here is beef up Prigozhin's role. He's now he's keen to to take what he can. He'll fi- he thinks he'll figure a way out to to make to turn it to his advantage. But if the lines in Ukraine freeze physically over the winter and and as these fortifications are built that you know there's very little um, military movement, then would it suit Putin to have somebody like Yevgeny Prigozhin um, crowned the governor or the czar or God knows whatever of of the, the the four liberated territories to use their language, you know, so that then if and when Ukraine breaks through, it's it's not Putin's fault. He's he's a master at scapegoating, blamestorming. He can find people to carry the can. So far, it's been his military leaders. They've gone the, the, the merry-go-round of senior generals who have been in charge, and then out a few weeks later is long, and we've discussed it many, many times. So maybe Prigozhin here is being set up by Putin to be the sort of political ruler of the Russian bit in Ukraine, such that Putin thinks, when it all goes bendy, I can just cut it off and say it was all his fault, but uh, you know, I'll deal with the consequences later. Prigozhin thinks, I'll make this work. Um, but what he has to do, if that's his aspiration, is to take a more um, political stance, uh, so not just the military side of what Wagner's doing, but also a more overt stance. And so he's got to come out. He's got to come out of the shadows. He's got to. He's got to have his own press office and his press statements and et cetera, et cetera. And he's got to start trying to build up his his kudos. So saying that he was involved in the 2016 elections and he's interfering in the midterms and all this sort of stuff. That's going to play well with what he sees as his domestic base. So I think this is a play by Evgeny Prigozhin for a greater political stance. And I think the stars are aligned for Putin here. He's happy to go with it for now. Um, see see what happens militarily over the over the winter, but you might see that Yevgeny Prigozhin is more and more vocal, and we see and hear more and more from him and of him, and that he's then built up to be the the face of Russia's um, activity and um, and their their presence in Ukraine, such that you know he he can take as much uh, as much of the kudos as he likes, and when it all goes bendy, he's the guy that that carries the can. I, I mean, a lot of that is my is my analysis and, and speculation, but um, happy to invite comment, DMs open as ever. Uh, please get in touch. Let's, uh, let's throw these ideas around. Well, James, do you want to come in on that first for us? I think that's a good analysis from Dom um, on how Prigorjin has, uh, has really elevated himself during the war, through Wagner Group especially, and how he clearly aspires to more public-facing role within the, uh, the the Kremlin inner circle, the Putin inner circle. I, I just want to caveat it slightly. Like the, the, There's some important issues or points that Prigozhin has got to get through if he's going to um, really establish himself in this inner circle. The Kremlin and, and the people who surround the Kremlin is notoriously um, backstabbing um, group of people. You know, It's a hard, hard group and there's a lot of power and money at stake, etc., one of the most powerful groups that Prigozhin doesn't have on his side and is and is very dangerous to be enemies with is the FSB and the security services, who will be looking at the rise of Prigozhin and his Wagner group, etc., with real um, uh, mistrust and distaste. And they will be, you know, he, he's become so prominent um, over the last few months that they will be working behind the scenes to ready dossiers, ready, ready his fall, etc., um so 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 there's that and also you have to remember that he has been one of the biggest critics of of someone like uh, Shoigu the um <clears throat> Russian defense minister and at times we have maybe been slightly guilty at over reporting the demise at Shoigu of Shoigu but Shoigu's still around and he still pops up 
in fairly prominent positions next to Putin. So Putin, and Putin is very careful to position people prominently uh, as, as uh, you know, for effect, you know, to, to make sure that people know who his right-hand hand men are, etc. And I think in many ways, Shoigu and Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, have been so on the back of Shoigu to try and undermine him, and yet they failed to do that. And even the general, um, Alexander Lapin, who um, they managed to get sacked, was supposedly um, last week or the week before, I forget, um, after a lot of criticism. Uh, Pirozhin has been on uh, Telegram rowing back slightly on his criticism of, of this general since sacking. So there's a lot of nuance going on. We 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 see Prigozhin clearly his stories in ascendancy. Clearly he wants something serious. He's been given the green light by Putin, the Kremlin, to come around of the shadows to corporize the Wagner Group to say these statements about meddling in in the U.S. elections, etc. Um, but he still has many enemies. He still has a long way to go before he can really solidify his position. Thanks very much, James and Tom. There's just one more story from Russia I think we should talk about quickly before we move back to Ukraine. Francis, um, you've been looking at this story. Natalia Vasileva reported yesterday on um, some calls uh, uh, some Russian journalists made to the, the children of some of Moscow's elite. Yes. So this is a story, a scoop really by an independent Russian news outlet, which are based in Latvia. And as you say, David, they've called up about a dozen sons and sons-in-law of many of the political heavyweights in Russia, asking them and challenging them on whether they would be signing up to fight in Ukraine. Now, interestingly, many of the these children of prominent Russian political figures hung up immediately when they were asked to uh, to speak to them. Um, those that did speak have um, usually sort of squatted away uh, the, the call. Others have actually commentated on the war itself and have, uh, you know, come out with some lines that are basically regurgitated Russian propaganda. But what's I think the most interesting thing about it is the manner in which the Russian elite still continues to flaunt in a sense their wealth publicly uh, on social media many of these privileged children are, are sort of flaunting their holidays on Instagram they're living a life of luxury boasting about their peak physical condition um, and this of course is all coming in the context of when you've mobilized over 300,000 people many of of whom are, as the stories we've been reporting have said that they're too old, they're too unfit to fight. And so it's not a good look. And this, I think, will be something that will no doubt um, put a bit of pressure on these individuals. The fact that, that this story is now being um, reported not only within them in the Russian press, independent press, but also um, uh, here in the in, in the West. I mean, I'll just look at some individuals themselves. So um, Alexei Solrakov, he's a 32-year-old fitness blogger who is the fa- whose father-in-law is Sergei Shoigu, who, of course, we were just talking about, Russia's defense minister. He was on holiday in Nepal when he picked up the phone to the reporters. He refused to comment when he was asked about whether he would go to fight. Um, Ilya Medvedev, whose father is, of course, Dmitry, the former Russian president and deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council. He said he hadn't received summons to join up. Um, uh, the 39-year-old son of Russia's interior minister uh, also rejected suggestions of volunteering, but claimed that he would be willing to go to Ukraine if he was called up. So um, just some interesting insights there, I think, into uh, the mentality, at least, among the children of the Russian elite. And if indeed that's indicative of how a lot of young, wealthy Russians think, as I think it is indicative, as we've talked about at length in the past, then I think that tells its own story. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, Just sorry, just one more update before we do go back to uh, events in Ukraine. Uh, James, you wanted to talk a little bit about this meeting between the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan with Putin in Sochi. Um, There were some some interesting things that came out from that. Can you talk us through what you're thinking? Very quickly, this is um, another story about the drop in um, power and influence of the Kremlin in its near abroad, in its uh, former colonies, in the in, in the former Soviet space, and in this case, South Caucasus, where Azerbaijan and Armenia have been involved in some of the worst fighting, or the worst fighting, in September on their borders since the uh, 2020 war. 
maybe 150 soldiers killed. So very serious. Normally, um, in this sort of instance, Putin has acted as the peace broker in the South Caucasus. There are also 2,000 Russian soldiers supposedly on the Azerbaijan-Armenia border um, who have been there for two years supposedly to keep the peace um, in this fragile 30-year uh, hot-cold conflict sort of thing. Anyway, uh, after the after the fighting in September, Azerbaijan and Armenia ended up turning to the European Union and um, and to a lesser extent, US officials to try and bash out a peace deal. There were some incredible photos of uh, the two leaders sitting around a small table with um, Macron, the French president, talk, talking uh, talking through details of a deal, etc. Um, uh, Putin belatedly gets tries to get in on this act, and he summons both uh, Pashinyan, the Prime Minister of Armenia, and Aliyev, the President of Azerbaijan, to his um, his house in in Sochi, where he likes to go to to uh, have a rest, have a think, and and to meet the occasional foreign leader. They turn up um, and they have their meeting, etc., and then nothing really happens. There's there's no. Uh, forward momentum made by by Putin. He can't him, impose himself on the region anymore. He was desperately trying to look the international statesman to get a result between these two um, you know, feuding countries, and he fails. A, a week on, sorry, that happened last Monday. A week on, we now get reports from uh, uh, Armenian newspapers saying that um, that whole meeting was a bit of a waste of time. Uh, Putin doesn't have any influence over Azerbaijan anymore to be able to hold it back. Um, we're turning to the West. So yet again, there are more signals of the increasing impotence of Putin and his sort of declining reputation, uh, reputation for being able to project strength and impose himself on places where he, he really should have a, um, a major presence in the South Caucasus and in Central Asia. Thank you very much, uh, James. Dom Nichols, can I come to you? I wanted to ask, and this might be on the minds of many people following developments in the south near Hassan. Uh, we've seen quite a few pop- propaganda photos from the Russian side uh, showing off new defences which have been erected on the far side of the river, the, the side of the river closer, closest to Crimea. As Francis detailed earlier, we do understand that the Russians are preparing a defensive line. From a soldier's perspective, what, did, what do you make so far of what the Russians are doing and how do you think the Ukrainians will be thinking of them? Yeah, so these images that have come out, they go, they're on the back of this, uh, the Wagner line that I just mentioned, these, these uh, concrete pyramids in the Donbass that are about a sort of metre tall um, anti-tank or anti-vehicle to, to, to stop vehicle movement. These things we've seen in Herzon on the south bank, on the, on the left bank, are, you, you talk about rivers the way that they flow. So the left bank, the southern bank of the Dnipro, which is closer to Crimea and closer to the sort of main force of Russian troops there. Um, these things are about... Um, the size of a small room, they're, they're pillboxes basically, but but pre-built with metal, so pre-built out of concrete, but with metal firing uh, ports, so a, a little bit stronger than just concrete. However, um, they just seem to have been randomly placed down. I mean, that cannot be the final position. You can't just expect, maybe you can expect mobilised troops, other troops, to just go into these things where they are. They need to be... Um, either dug in or, or protected somehow because at the moment yeah I, I mean a small arms round 556 7.62 mil you know, standard issue would not go through them but anything heavier, heavier than that um, 50 cal 12.7 mil any anti-tank uh, guided missile anti-tank round anything like that and then certainly a tank 120 mil 125 smooth bore possibly would just go straight through them so they're not they're not i mean they're a nice target i mean they're just big square things you you very rarely see something quite quite so beautifully sided on the battlefield so so i can't believe that they are in their final position they're not going to be camouflaged but yeah these are along the south bank of the Dnipro river there in um, in hezon region so the other side of the river from hezon city and it looks as if so the, the suggestion is that, that Russia will pull out from the north side of the river, pull out of the city itself. They're already evacuating civilians from the south side, and then they might they might want to use those houses for troops, accommodation, particularly as they go into winter, and then use these pillbox-type things as some sort of defensive line. Um, we, we'll wait, wait and see. But, I mean, the story, it does not end there because 
any obstacle, minefields or these these type of things or tank traps, these um, the hedgehogs that Ukraine have been building, the, the triangular-shaped metal structures, the Wagner line. I mean, they they really shouldn't just be plumped down to annoy the annoy the enemy to try and uh, just to, to yeah as, as an embuggerance. They need to be thought of as part of a wider defensive plan to slow down any advancing troops to channel them into a, a wider killing area uh, and basically to to ensure that the enemy it's not just saying don't come here the obstacles should say come here but come where i want you to go so if they are just there just just as static firing points that's one thing i mean they, they do offer a certain amount of protection but they just won't they just won't last very long if they are there to as part of a wider defensive plan then that is something else entirely now of course any defensive positions such as these or any fortifications such as these they do have an impact on the force that's laying them because you should cover all these obstacles with with observation and fire so you have to expend resource and some of your uh, uh, scarce uh, probably scarce um, surveillance assets to to watch over them um, and you then need to be able to bring down fire onto them either direct fire from soldiers or tanks or other other bits and pieces and indirect fire mortars artillery missiles and so on and so forth because there's absolutely no point in having having a tank trap for example that snarls up the, the tracks gets wire wrapped around the axle of a, of a tank so the tank doesn't move and then nothing happens i mean you want to destroy the tank it's one thing to stop it and that's good but a proper defensive plan will have a will have a um, have a purpose and it will have like i say cover it with observation so you know you've snarled up that tank and then fire so you can you can knock the tank out so any defensive obstacles such as this will tie up troops but can be very effective if you get the coordination um, correct and you commit other forces to it very rarely and only only really in in urban combat are obstacles there um, just to stop and even then that that is that that stops sort of vehicles or personnel coming down down streets in a in a city or a village town um, in order to to channel them somewhere else so if it's not included as part of a wider defensive plan, it can actually be a weak point because nothing is impenetrable. Even these, these great boxes and, and, and minefields, you can breach a minefield. So if you've got, let's say, a minefield or, or these de- defensive pillbox positions and you think, well, that's it, job done. I can, um, that's that part of the front line covered. I can now use the, uh, the troops that were covering that area. I can use them elsewhere. Fantastic. I've, I've covered that little bit just with these, uh, these concrete pillboxes and a minefield. I mean, wrong, 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 because the the enemy, you know, as far as Russia concerned, Ukraine in this point of, in this in this uh, analogy, then look at that. There will always be a way of breaching these things, and if you are not covering this area with observation, you don't know when they've breached it. If you're not covering it with fire, and you've not got troops in position, either either physically there or some kind of mobile reserve, then whoever gets through that obstacle the tank trap the the minefield the river whatever it might be they've then got uh, free reign to to run you know havoc behind you a bit like what we saw up in Kharkiv a couple of months ago there was a defensive line there we think we think Russia's defensive line was was made up of of military units so there was no no real kind of physical fortifications there but the point is the same that once you once you've broken through that crust if you've not been stopped and channeled into a killing area, then then you've got free reign. You can do what you like. You know the moment, momentum is with you. So if Russia are creating these defensive positions and not properly embedding them in a wider defensive construct of of surveillance, observation, mobile reserves, um, artillery, and other indirect fire ranged as in already laid on, so you just have to you know go at a moment's notice. They they, they the land the rounds will land where you want them to if they're not doing that then and they are taking troops away for use elsewhere they're absolutely leaving themselves open to be to be exploited as and when ukraine break through them now that might come at some cost breaking through a, de- a defensive position but if you think the enemy are not doing it properly um, and there's nothing to suggest that this russian army knows what it's doing properly um, so if ukraine thought here's an opportunity um, we'll, we'll, we'll mass force will punch through there and then keep going. It could be a weak point for Russia. And as I say, if they're using the mobilised troops here, which, as, as we said before, poorly equipped, not, not very well trained, don't really know what they're doing. Um, if, they're, if they're relying on them and, and taking more experienced troops out of the line to use elsewhere, then far from this being a, a stronger point for the Russian defence, it could actually be a weaker one. 
Thank you very much, Dom. Just one more thing on that. Uh, apologies if you did mention it. Um, but when we were talking earlier, we, we, we spoke about some of these tank traps sort of arrayed, I, th- I believe they were sort of near a river. And you made um, a very simple and obvious point about just the, the size of the country and how you know Russia won't have enough um, uh, of these defences to really cover everything. Could you talk us through that? Well, at the risk of repeating everything you've just said, but yeah, I mean, Ukraine's a massive country. So if you are if you're doing what I say, if you're using physical emplacements of concrete and metal and barbed wire and and holes in the ground and all the rest of it um, as, as part of your defensive plan, that's fine. The, all these things can work. I mean, this is what militaries train for. This is one of the, the main tasks of, of engineering assets is to create obstacles and to breach obstacles. I mean, it's, it's a very well-worn, tried and tested military um, aspect of war. But I mean, if you try and do that everywhere, then my God, you need you need you know, millions of pe- of people not only to to put these things in, but as I've said, they can't just sit on their own. They've got to be covered by observation and fire. There's got to be a mobile reserve because the enemy is going to get through somewhere. It's all got to be nested together um, in a in a in a wider defensive plan. If I can lurch for one moment back to my back to my military doctrine, so we used to remember the principles of defence. Quiet at the back. The principles of defence is MADROD, M-A-D-R-O-D, mutual support, offensive spirit, deception, reserves, offensive spirit and depth. Oh, thank God. Sorry, I'm sweating. I'm sweating here. But I mean, that's that's what's taught. And if you're not, if you're weak on any of those areas, if you don't have mutual support, so so more than one uh, piece of military equipment, a weapon that can cover the area, then that's not great because, you know, one thing's going to run out of ammunition or have another task to do or break down or what have you. If you've not got all round defence, so there's a gap in the line somewhere, guess where the enemy are going to come? If you haven't got deception then you're, you are inviting the whole weight of the enemy to come down on you. So you need to use some kind of deception to try and get the enemy to split its forces up and, and to thin out that which arrives on top of you. Reserves, as I've said, they are going to get through somewhere. You need to have that mobile reserve to whiz around the corner and save the day. Offensive spirit, you know, defence is not about just sitting there and sort of you know, closing your eyes, shooting, shooting your guns, hoping they will go away. You've got to take the fight to them. Okay, you've got to push them on the back foot and get them out of your neighbourhood. And once you do that, once their hearts go out of it and they see, "Cry, this isn't this isn't bloody working." They're actually they're advancing on us. Then you know the the bottom falls out of there fight and they go on they go on the retreat so you've got to be very very aggressive in your defense and then finally depth because they are going to get through somewhere you need to exhaust them you need them to physically wear themselves out the troops need to be tired the ammunition needs to be run out the, the vehicles need to run out of fuel so a depth a, a defense that's only a few kilometers deep if that i mean that's no that's no defense at all you've this has got to be tens of kilometers so that any offensive force is just fighting 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 all the time until they are absolutely exhausted that's how you do it properly i'm not suggesting it's easy um we'll need to look back at history to find some places where it was where it was properly done but um you know if if russia are not looking at all these i don't know what the russian principles of defense are but uh, you know if they're not following madrod or their equivalent of then then they are just inviting yet more trouble Thank you very much, Tom. Just very quickly, you've spoken a lot about the defence. Could we just talk about the offence? Not asking you to sort of flip everything around, but you talked about Madrod being a principle for defence. Are there principles for offence that you think uh, the Ukrainians might be considering? Bloody hell, I wish you'd told me you were going to press me on my 20-year-old doctrine. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's just very interesting. Principles of the offence. I'd, I'd, ha- I'd have to go and have a look at it. But I'll tell you what, though. So the British military have 10 principles of war, and they are in no particular order except the first one, which is selection and maintenance of the aim. I, you decide what you're going to do, and then you stick with it. As long as you know, you're confident that your analysis is correct, you stick with it and, and go for it. There will be tough times, but you just reinforce your analysis until... the absolutely until you realise that you're onto a, onto a loser. And that is the one thing that Russia's not done here. Selection and maintenance of the aim. They've just not done it. They were going for Kiev, then they were going for this, and they're going for that. Then, you know, it's all over the place. So they, they really haven't adhered to any really basic doctrine stuff um, to hang their hat on. They've just gone for mass and artillery and throwing uh, people into the fight. So um, I will come back to you on the principles of the offence. Please DM me. Someone help um but uh yeah i can't remember off the top of my head it's been a long time no worries thank you thank you very much tom i think maybe in the future i think you've you've given a great account of 
the potential Russian defence and what it look, looks like and where the potential holes may be. I think it'd be good to switch this round in the next few days and look at how the Ukrainians might be thinking about what's to come next and how they'll be planning for that and what they'll be looking for. But thank you very much, Dom, for that. Um, Francis, I know you had one more update for us before we go to our final thoughts. I did. But just before that, I was just struck by what Don was saying there about trying to think of examples of where defences have been done well involving, you know, big um, uh, concrete defences. And, and actually, I can't really think of any in the modern annals of warfare, but I can think of plenty that have failed, you know, these sort of impenetrable uh, walls, as it were, that have been put up. I mean, obviously, in the Second World War, if you think of the Maginot Line, famously the French defences that were meant to stop um, the Nazi advance, um, which which... Um, as we all know, in, in, in 1940, uh, was not very successful. Then the German ones, the Atlantic Wall in 1944, where they built, I think, in 42 onwards. But in 1944, obviously, it was meant to be impenetrable so that D-Day wouldn't be possible. Of course, we all know what happened there. And then finally, the Siegfried Line, which was, uh, again, a big defensive mechanism, which had all of these sort of dragon's teeth to stop tanks and things like that. But that, too, was uh, destroyed by the Allies. So um, I think it's worth saying that actually, whilst they may well look very effective in propaganda photographs, the reality is very different, that actually um, they are not usually um, anywhere near as solid as they appear. Um, but yes, David, there was just one final update, which pales in significance in many ways. But I think it's still just worth um, drumming home that these kind of discussions are going on in the background because they are actually really, really important for the geopolitical future of Europe. So Sweden's new prime minister is meeting with the Turkish president uh, Erdogan today um, in an effort to clinch Turkish approvals for the country's bid to join NATO. Now, as we've talked about at length in the past, Sweden and Finland, of course, have now applied for membership of the military alliance after the Russian invasion. There's been widespread support for that within the alliance, but it's been the NATO member Turkey who have been holding off from endorsing their bids. They've been accusing Sweden in particular of ignoring some of their security concerns. Uh, Erdogan's government has sort of pressed the two countries to crack down on individuals it considers terrorists that they say are being harboured there. These terrorists are supporters of an outlawed uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party. Um, so, as I say, it may seem like a small thing in which to end an episode on, on in, in the update space, but if you're thinking of this in the broad brush brush way, I think that there will be a settlement that is eventually reached between Sweden, Finland and Turkey uh, that will allow them to become NATO members. And that is a big, big deal, an expansion of the NATO alliance. And this was meant to be the complete opposite of what would occur in Putin's planning. He thought that NATO would be weak. He thought the Western resolve would crumble. And actually what we're seeing, if we're looking at these big indicative signs, not just flowery language, not just talk, but actual practical things that have happened in the geopolitical space. One of them is the expansion of NATO. And that is something that historians in the future will talk about, no doubt, and will have big, big geopolitical consequences. So we're talking a lot recently about hypotheticals and things like that. But this is concrete stuff that's happening. These will be the bullet points in textbooks that people study one day. And so I just wanted to draw attention to it as a final thought today. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Uh, Dom and James, can I come to you for your final thoughts? I don't know who would like to go first. A final thought. I mentioned yesterday, keep an eye on the G20, starting next Tuesday in Indonesia. Uh, still don't know if Vladimir Putin is going to go to that. I think he will not. He will not risk the photo opportunities of people turning their backs on him or spurning him in any way. But let's keep an eye out for that. And finally, final, final, I've got to say thank you to John Spencer, who's listening, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at Madison uh, Policy Forum, former U.S. Uh, Army Major. He has, he has saved me here. He's, 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 the principles of the offence are audacity, concentration, surprise and tempo. Uh, and uh, yes, I, I think I leave it up to you, the listener, to, to, to think which, which, of the, uh, which of the forces, Russia or U- Ukraine, have been showing more of those. Thanks, Tom. James Kilner. I would continue to look at the midterm elections and uh, whether Russia, uh, how, how influential, sorry, Russia's already said or pre rolled in, uh, the Kremlin through, 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 through their friend, the chef, ha- has already said that they gained two medals. So it's just seeing how influential they can be. So um, I think uh, I, I, I definitely be watching that. And then also whether there is any shift in any discernible way whatsoever on Zelensky and Ukraine's position, Ari, um, when and how, and if they if they if they want to speak to Russia at any point um, off the back of the US uh, comments. 
Thank you very much, James and Domin. Apologies, Francis. You do have a final thought. I, I, I miss that. That's quite right. Well, just a very cu- a couple of very very small ones, if I may. So the first is is there's a, a private survey agency called Russian Field, and they've released a poll that uh, says that the number of war supporters in Russia is declining. So own, now, of course, you know, don't just take this with a pinch of salt. Take it with a with a handful of salt. But nonetheless, interesting if you look at the numbers. So only 16 percent they are saying of Russians support the war, uh, while in April it was 25%. They say that the number of peace supporters is more similar, so 27% versus 23 in April. But amongst those 16% of Russians who support the war, only half think that the war was needed. So, as I say, just an interesting thing that if it is true, not saying it is, but if it is, that's, I think, quite an interesting marker of how things have changed in recent months. As I was saying earlier, you know, I, I think this winter is really going to be a test of resolve for the West and for the Russia, both their politicians and their peoples. The problem is that uh, you know, autocracies tend to keep watertight for longer because of the mechanisms of state control, whereas democracies are more volatile, shall we say. Yet over a longer period of time, democracies are adaptive and they can force Russia's hands. The West has more resources available to it and Russia cannot keep fighting this war forever with the sanctions as severe as they are and at this scale of the military cost. So I think it's really vital for Ukraine to to keep the sense of momentum that they've sustained until now. Quite how they're going to achieve this over winter remains to be seen, but perhaps heads on holds the key. But just in terms of my final, final thought, it's a very small story that I picked up uh, that was talking about there being more examples of people being deported from Herzon into Russia. And this has been something that, of course, we've been following on the podcast now for some time hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Ukrainians forcibly removed from Ukraine to Russia, sometimes going through filtration cramps and effectively disappearing. This is something I just wanted to say that we are still very sensitive to. And in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be doing some more in-depth investigations over the winter into this. So I just wanted to say that we do believe it is still happening, but we have far from lost attention on it we are going to focus on it much much more because i think it's one of the great stories of this war that is yet unreported in the way that it needs to be ukraine the latest is an original podcast by the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, do leave a review, as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.